0: I'm Jeff Hebert, and welcome to my weekly podcast, The Gospel Wabi Sabi, God's Good News for Imperfect People, where we've been taking a look at the life of Jesus through the lens of the Gospel of John and the New Testament. So this week we are in chapter 18 as we near the uh, the coming of the cross, and just as we approach the scripture today, I just want to remind you that if you'd like to be a supporter of the Gospel Wabi Sabi, you can see how to do that in the program notes Uh, that go along with each, each episode. But we're in chapter 18, and I'll be reading starting with verse 1 through verse 11. Let's hear God's word together. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches and lanterns and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, "'Who is it you want?' "'Jesus of Nazareth,' they replied. "'I am he,' Jesus said." And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. And when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it you want? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And Jesus commanded Peter, Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Well, I'm sure you're all familiar with the magical and mysterious world of Harry Potter. Uh, His novels have captured the imagination of readers all around the world for the last, I don't know, 20 years. It's a literary phenomenon that made the author, J.K. Rowling, one of the wealthiest women in England. And one of the movies uh, is called The Prisoner of Azkaban. And in it, it has a plot line about the backstory with Harry Potter, about the betrayal of a close friend. You see, at the very beginning of the Harry Potter saga, Harry's parents are killed. And in The Prisoner of Azkaban, we discover that their closest, most trusted friend, Sirius Black, is accused of being the one who betrayed them and then caused their deaths and everything else that had happened uh, subsequently. Betrayal. It is such a powerful feeling, such a powerful theme. And the closer the friend, the deeper the shock and the anger. Have you ever been betrayed by someone that you trusted? I don't mean a little backstabbing and uh, some petty disagreements. I mean full-fledged lie-to-your-face destructive betrayal. I can think of only two people in my life that fall into that category. There's something in betrayal that simply violates our sense of order, of basic decency, of, of safety. I mean, if you can't trust those in your inner circle, your innermost circle, who can you trust? And so Jesus was betrayed. And that led to some terrible hours of humiliation and torture. But the, t- the betrayal, the suffering, the torture, is not the main theme of the gospel writers. And not the, th- the main theme of Jesus' life either. Though the details are included, the focus consistently throughout all the gospels is on the power of Jesus' presence in the midst of his betrayal, in the midst of his sufferings, and his glory as the Son of God. And so, when we look at the death of Jesus, we see something so unique. First of all, we know that his death was voluntary. He was not the sad victim of circumstances. He willingly laid down his life. His death, number two, was definitely the fulfillment of God's great plan to bring forgiveness and salvation to the world. And third, his death was a great expression of his majesty. So that we might stand in awe at the foot of the cross with the soldier who looked at Jesus and truly this was the Son of God. So today we're joining Jesus as he's on the move again from Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives and then the Garden of Gethsemane. To get there he has to exit Jerusalem. He goes through the the lush valley of grapevines and crosses the Kidron Brook. All these events took place during the Jewish holiday of the Passover and every home in Jerusalem was going to have a meal of the Passover lamb. That's a lot of lambs. These lambs had to be sacrificed in the temple, and the blood poured out on the altar. Now, historians estimate that there were well over 200,000 lambs that were sacrificed in this way during the week of Passover, 200,000. You can imagine what the temple courts looked like. I mean, they were literally a slaughterhouse. Now, from that altar, there was a channel that drained the blood away. Well, guess where that blood went? Into the Kidron brook. It's not real ecological, but it had to go somewhere. So as Jesus stepped over the brook, it was probably still red with the blood of the lamb's sacrifice. So think about that for a moment. The lambs that symbolized the sacrifice of the Messiah, the one who would bear the sins of all the world. And I wonder what was going through Jesus' mind as he stepped over the brook, saw the blood, with his own sacrifice so imminent. And so they are going to the garden in Gethsemane. It's a private place for prayer. Now, space prohibited people from having gardens next to their homes inside the walls of Jerusalem. And they were forbidden by Jewish ceremonial law from using any kind of manure as fertilizer inside the city walls. And so wealthy people had small gardens outside the city behind locked gates. And Jesus must have had an unnamed friend with such a garden who gave jesus the key and free access today in israel this area is set off as a religious tourist site and there's a little chapel there maintained by the franciscan brothers in it are eight immense olive trees that possibly were alive when jesus was there it's where jesus liked to pray with his disciples Now, other gospel writers go into much more detail about Jesus's prayer in the garden, his agony over facing the cup of death that he is about to drink, how he sweats drops of blood, how the disciples can't seem to stay awake with him. Now, John kind of just leapfrogs right over all that stuff into the betrayal, I guess because it's already been told. You know, John seemed to like to tell uh, a different angle or the new details that weren't contained in the synoptic gospels. So John leapfrogs over all that stuff, into the betrayal itself. So Judas knew that the garden was there. He knew it well because he had accompanied Jesus there probably on many occasions. Judas and the soldiers appear kind of coming through the shadows with their torches. How many? No one knows for sure, but it does say some were from the Jewish temple police and there was a detachment of Roman soldiers who carried actually a even greater authority. Now the Greek word used to describe the Romans, *speria*, which means at least a detachment of 200 men armed to the teeth. It could mean up to a thousand soldiers. That would be a pretty big crowd. But whatever another number, it was a big force coming out to capture this unarmed Galilean carpenter and his eleven misfits. Now, 700 years later or earlier, the prophet Isaiah wrote of this Messiah that he will be led as a lamb. Of the slaughter. 200 soldiers to get a lamb. I guess they were worried about some kind of an uprising by Jesus, and that's why they came at night secretly to take care of Jesus before anyone could do anything about it. What's amazing is that when Jesus saw them coming, he went towards them. He didn't hide in an olive tree. I mean, that's sort of what they expected. They expected them to all scatter like, you know, scared rabbits. The Passover comes at a time of the full moon. And so there was plenty of light in the sky, and they came with lanterns and torches in case they had to search out the hiding spots in the shadows. People climbing trees or hiding behind rocks to get away. No, Jesus, he went right up to them. Who is it that you want? Who are you looking for? You see, Jesus was totally in control of the situation. It's almost as though he said it almost casually, like, hi, fellas, what's up? There was no panic in his voice. There was no attempt to escape. What follows is a pretty odd conversation because Judas just, as we know in the other Gospels, Judas comes up and kisses Jesus on the cheek. Now that's just a common greeting among Middle Eastern men back then, like a handshake, but a little more personal. But can you imagine that? It's probably the most famous and the most shameful kiss in all history. Probably just a peck on the cheek, if that. Maybe they didn't even touch as Judas, Judas kind of brushed or rushed through the ritual and, you know, barely brushed against Jesus' face. The soldiers knew the kiss was the signal. The soldiers say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. They didn't have the courage to say, we're looking for you, buddy. They couldn't help but feel the power of his presence. Now Judas was standing there with the soldiers, and Judas had made his choice. Think of the confusion and the hurt when the eleven disciples for the first time Looked over and saw Judah standing with them. Standing with them when, for the last three years, he had been standing with the disciples. He now openly identifies himself with the opposition, those who hated Jesus. So, not only was this a depra- uh, the betrayal of Jesus, but the disciples were also betrayed as they saw him there. And maybe there's some more than just looks exchanged, maybe there are some harsh words exchanged with Judas. There's some well-known betrayers in history. Brutus, who stabbed Julius Caesar in the Rotunda, which I think is a very painful place to be stabbed. Uh, General Benedict Arnold during the Revolutionary War. Uh, or Shakespeare's <coughs> excuse me, uh, mysterious Iago, who betrayed King Othello. But Judas, my friends, always tops the list. He reached a point of no return. Remember, Jesus had handed him that piece of bread dipped in wine, and he left. The disciples didn't know what, Jesus, what Judas was going to do or why he left, and tells, we're told that Satan entered into him. The sad truth is that it's possible for us to get to a place where we might reject the love of Christ over and over again, that we completely sell out to the enemy of God and have total rejection of him. But we also know how big is God's grace if we tar- simply turn to him and repent. But Jesus here simply says, I am he. And I love this. It tells us everybody falls back. 200 guys plus with swords and shields and all the rest. Jesus let out just a little fingernails worth of his power. Just came out of him and they hit the dirt. I mean, they were knocked flat. What amazing power to show that Jesus was in control. Can you see the soldiers trying to recover their bluster and their courage in the face of this power that just kind of knocked them down? The kind of majesty that they were confronting? Is there any doubt that Jesus is in control of this whole situation? He did it to emphasize the point that they were not taking his life from him. Jesus was laying it down. I don't know if you saw the stupid comments by uh, Representative Lauren Boebert Last week, she joked at a Christian conference that Jesus didn't have enough AR-15 rifles to, I quote, keep his government from killing him, unquote. I mean, that's just an embarrassing thing, embarrassment that she doesn't actually know what Jesus was doing at all, and she's speaking at a Christian conference. In fact, as we'll see in a minute, Jesus didn't want his followers to use any violence to try and save him, as he rebukes Peter for using a sword. Jesus Jesus doesn't need our help, friends. In him there is so much power, the power of his presence. He doesn't need our help. I wonder how much we utilize that power today, how much we believe in it. Have we overlooked how we could use that same power in positive and constructive ways? Years ago, <laughs> excuse me, I met a guy named Verley Sangster. He's this big black guy, he's an urban minister in Chicago, lived in a very tough, tough neighborhood told the story of how one night he was on his way back to his apartment and he felt the cold steel of a revolver pressed up against his head. Two big guys wanted to rob him, and Verley was big, but he was big in faith too. So he just brushed the gun away and he asked them, What are you doing? Is there something that I have that you need? Well, let's talk about it. How can I help you? And they stood there in the street and they talked for about an hour. They couldn't find work. They'd given up on just about everything. They had to exist some way or another. And Verley said, you know, I'd be doing the exact same thing you're doing were not for the power of somebody else in my life. And he went on to tell him about the power of the Lord Jesus. Some cars drove by, the robbers took off. But it was very powerful to have had somebody look at them with the loving power of Christ. Friends, never forget there is power in Jesus. Take authority in. In his name, There are stories of people in dangerous situations who take authority in Christ's name and say, I command you in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus Christ, this is wrong. Well, while the soldiers are getting up off the ground, Jesus said to them, let these other go, in verse 8, fulfilling what he had prayed about. I lost not one of them. But Peter, you know, what a knucklehead. He doesn't know what to do, so he grabs his sword and cuts off an ear. Now, Peter was a good fisherman, but he was a lousy swordsman. Lots of people criticized him. What was he doing with a sword in the first place? Was he still hanging on to the delusion that, you know, the fantasy that Jesus was going to lead them in a rebellion against the Romans? Possibly. But, you know, uh, Peter was a a man of action. Like, a lot of us are thinkers. We're into the process, and Peter didn't process. He didn't have a five-year plan. He just wasn't that kind of guy. So... In one sense, you do have to admire his courage. I mean, at least he did something. He meant well. He meant to do the right thing. But unfortunately, he was misguided. Why in the world now didn't the rest of the soldiers just jump in on Peter and just slay him? Imagine 200 cops out to arrest someone. Somebody whacks a police officer. What are they going to do? Are they going to say, good right hook? No. You hit a police... Police officer with 200 police officers around and school is out. They would be on them all in a second. They wouldn't just stand by and watch one of their own with some crazy man cutting off his ear. How is it that the rest of them just stood there? Why didn't they just rush forward, start swinging? I mean, the man's crying out. There's blood. His ear is in his hand. It's all the excuse they needed for a wholesale slaughter. for for resisting arrest. Again, they could have just done away with the complete situation. They would have been, in their minds, justified for slaughtering the whole bunch. But again, we see the power of Jesus' presence, his power to control this dynamite situation. So Jesus did something very unusual. He healed the man's ear, but it was not in response to faith. You know, almost every other time Jesus healed someone, there was an expression of faith or an asking for help. Almost every time, someone is asking for help. And this time, he healed when it was not requested. And the servant's name, the servant is named. Why? Why give us his name? Well, I think people later on were going to know this guy named Malchus. Maybe they would know his testimony of how his ear was healed. I think maybe we're going to see old Malchus in heaven because I'm sure it's possible he became a witness for Jesus after his ear was placed back in place. I hope it wasn't upside down or anything like that. Jesus got it right, I'm sure. But imagine that. Jesus knew it was time to restore what had been broken uh, falsely. And John doesn't record it, but the other gospel writers do. Jesus said to the disciples, Do you realize I could call down legions of angels? There are about 6,000 soldiers in one Roman legion. And Jesus said he's got lots more than that at his disposal. I mean, legions upon legions, plural. It's a lot of angels. I think they could have handled these soldiers with no problem. He didn't call them down. Why didn't Jesus call them down when the lash was going across his back? Why didn't he... When the nails were going into his hands, why didn't he call them as he hung on that cross? Because he loved us. Jesus's heart was set to fulfill God's purpose, not for his own welfare. And so he says here, shall I not drink the cup? Kind of a rhetorical question. He was obedient to the father to the very end. And then verse 12, it's just so stupid too. They bound him. I mean, it's just kind of absurd to think that they could take some ropes and put them around his hands and bind him. I mean, I pity the soldiers who went up and wrapped Jesus' hands. They're probably under their breath saying, please don't do anything. Please don't do anything so powerful. I don't want to have to hit the deck again. I mean, ropes couldn't have hold him. But to put those ropes on his hands, those hands that had brushed across the blind sockets of a man who then received his sight, those hands that had reached out and touched the leper so that he was clean, the hands that took a little boy's lunch And 5,000 were fed. The hands that reached out and touched a little girl. when he said, Talitha Kumi, little girl arise. And she came back to life. Hands raised above a storm on the Sea of Galilee. And the storm stopped. Those hands, they now bound. How absurd. Remember this. Rope, nails, they didn't hold Jesus to the cross. What held him there was his love. God so loved the world. Jesus so loved us that he came to give himself for us. So they bound his hands, and today his hands are not bound. In the same power of his presence, we can reach out and touch anyone around us who seeks him, who needs God's touch of grace and healing. Believe with all my heart that he stands ready to reach out and touch us in the same power of his presence. Now perhaps you're new to this podcast, you're new to all this stuff, perhaps you've heard about the Lord, but you've never really allowed him to touch your life and you've never experienced the touch of eternal salvation, and I just pray that you would let him come into your life, that you turn to him as your Savior and Lord and allow him to transform your heart, your own life through your faith and trust in him. And if you've been a believer for a while, I hope you'll fall in love with Jesus all over again when you realize how much he did for you, how precious you are to him, for him to lay aside all the power of heaven, knowing knowing it would lead to his execution. So on a close, uh, I just want to read the words of a great old hymn that I think captures the essence of what I'm talking about. It's called, I Am Not Skilled to Understand. It goes like this. I am not skilled to understand what God hath willed, what God hath planned. I only know at his right hand stands one who is my Savior. I take him at his word indeed. Christ died for sinners. This I read. For in my heart I find a need of him to be my Savior. That he should leave his place on high and come for sinful man to die, you count it strange, so once did I, before I knew my Savior. And oh, that he fulfilled may see the travail of his soul in me, and with his work contented be as I with my dear Savior. Yes, living, dying, let me bring my strength, my solace from this spring, that he who lives to be my king once died to be my savior. Hope you have a great week. Take care.